welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. David Clark. He's the president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association and a assistant clinical professor of gastroenterology emeritus at Oregon Health and Science University. He teaches graduate courses in psychophysiologic medicine at Arizona State University, and he's the author of the book, They Can't Find Anything Wrong. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Dave, thanks for being on the show. Um, We had a podcast with uh, Dave a few weeks ago. We talked about he's been working in the... um, mind-body world for a long time. He's a gastroenterologist and he's made a huge contribution in the irritable bowel syndrome world, which isn't that the most common diagnosis right now as far as GI issues? Is yeah, as, as one of the many uh, functional gastrointestinal disorders or um, what are a new term is now disorders of brain-gut interaction, acknowledging uh, the important role of the brain uh, finally after uh, decades and decades of calling it irritable bowel. Right. So it's something where, you know, medicine is sort of focused on structure and probably at least in spine surgery, less than 10% of the time do we find a structural reason for pain. And that doesn't mean 90% of people are imagining it. <clears throat> there's lots of reasons to have pain and there's neurological circuits, there's body physiology, all sorts of stuff. So <clears throat> the vast majority of symptoms are based in the brain and in your reaction to the brain. And medicine is somehow just not really pursuing that very aggressively. So Dave is actually one of my inspirations is that he has been doing this for many years. Help with how many people do you think you've helped Dave with irritable bowel syndrome? Yeah, I, I would have. estimate over seven thousand. You know, based on a um, sample that I did uh, over about six months, uh, it's it's in that ballpark of uh, people that I've done detailed interviews with who had no um, uh, organic or structural cause for their symptoms. So I'll make a statement, see if you agree with this or not, you don't have to, um, that once you understand the problem, the, the solution is actually, I use the word disturbingly simple. It's not so hard compared to the other things we put people through. So it takes a little bit of work and exploration and whatever, but once you understand the approach of going to the root cause of the symptoms, the actual results are really rewarding, obviously for the patient, but also for us. And it's not so hard. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, most of the time that's true. There are a number of patients whose issues are more subtle and that take uh, more experience. But I have to say, even when I was a beginner and there were a lot of things that I didn't understand about this field back in the 1980s, I was still getting um, better results uh, with patients than the rest of the healthcare system was getting because I was finally addressing uh, the root causes. You know, back in the early days, I wasn't doing it especially well, but I learned by doing. And again, even um, beginning efforts uh, uh, achieve success. So I just want to jump right to today. Um, Dave founded and is president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. And Psyche, of course, talks about your mental input in the past and physiologic is your body's response to all that. So he has been doing this work for a long time. And he um, was my, one of my inspirations of it. He just stopped his practice in 2009 to actually, he's taught all over the world. He puts on webinars. He um, is actively working on developing educational resources, supporting different people. And 
his efforts have really sort of led to a worldwide collaboration around this whole process is that the mind and body are just a unit. They respond as a unit. This is not imaginary stuff. This is, re- once you understand the problem, it's very, very treatable pathology. And I don't know about you, as a physician, I used to dread irritable bowel, fibromyalgia, et cetera. I, I love the diagnoses. Right? Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's remarkable, uh, the outcomes that we can achieve. Uh, if anything, they're actually, when you know what to look for, they're actually better than we can typically achieve with uh, organ diseases and structural abnormalities like cancer, diabetes, and heart disease. And we don't cure everybody with a psychophysiologic disorder, but um, we help more of them than we help with uh, those organ diseases. Uh, and so that's what makes it uh, so rewarding. Um, but I have to say, I, I got to give a lot of credit to um, Howard Schubiner and John Strax, who um, had a um, um, big conference uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 2009, where they brought people who had been working in isolation from each other together uh, to speak for 20 or 30 minutes each about the work they were doing. And that was the real uh, inspiration for the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association, because person after person got up and uh, was sharing, you know, a very similar story. We had all started from you know, dramatically different points on the healthcare spectrum. I mean, you and I, I mean, you're an orthopedic spine surgeon, I'm a gastroenterologist, and here we are talking about the same ideas. And that meeting was just a, um, uh, you know, like a big uh, expansion of that with all kinds of different people from the United States and Europe uh, who had uh, never, you know, none of us had been formally trained uh, through the course of our uh, instructional years uh, in what this was all about. We had all learned it by doing it, um, by encountering patients and by listening to them and um, by using trial and error to explore uh, treatment techniques. And we'd all arrived uh, pretty much at the same place. And to hear this coming from so many different people, um, you know, it was like a bunch of individual um, musical soloists coming together and playing a symphony. Uh, it was just, a, you know, a, a stunning meeting. And a group of us afterwards decided that we had to establish a nonprofit to uh, spread the word about this because it was just uh, so dramatic in uh, how effective um, these techniques were. And so a couple of years later, 2011, we incorporated uh, as a 501c3 nonprofit in the United States. And um, began the work. I was the, the first president. I'm still the president. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we were able to fundraise enough to hire our first executive director. Uh, we've got uh, webinar-based uh, training courses for professionals. We came out with a multi-author textbook uh, two years ago uh, called Psychophysiologic Disorders. Um, the website is ppdassociation.org. Uh, It's got lots of resources for both uh, professionals and patients, and we're holding conferences. We've got one going on um, at the end of October in 2021 uh, that people can go to our website and sign up for. Uh, It's aimed at professionals, but we're going to keep it jargon-free so that patients can take advantage of it. We've got 22 people uh, presenting, yourself included. Um, It's going to be um, a tremendous experience. Right. And it's exciting to see people, once they go, okay, um, I have a, I hate to say this, it's a real problem. We've joked about this because you've gotten person after person better. And then, um, you know, symptoms, the body responds. I mean, bodies are alive. We're not cadavers. That The cadavers are structure. We're living organisms. 
and they respond to everything around us, including the past, the present, all these things come into play. So symptoms are always real. I mean, that's the thing that's so difficult to get across to everybody, physicians included, that historically as surgeons in particular are trained, if we don't see it on a test, it doesn't exist. I mean, that's that's very concrete thinking. And probably 90% of all symptoms are based on some kind of interaction between you and the world. And your body responds in a, in a response. And your body has a chemical reaction, you get symptoms. So in some ways, it's like high school science. You go under adrenaline, cortisol, fight or flight, your body reacts. And that's the key, how you develop symptoms. And so um, the reason why I think, I'll put some words in your mouth, that we have so much passion about it. We have people that have been bounced around the medical system. They have no hope. They're very discouraged. They've given up. And not only do they get their lives back, they often thrive at a level they never knew. I mean, it's just a whole paradigm shift. I want you to understand that you react to the environment in certain ways and you start to choose to react differently. People's lives change in a very dramatic way. So it's incredibly energizing and inspiring. So that's why I think so many of us, so many of us have so much passion around it. At the same time, we all get a little frustrated because there seems to be so much needless suffering also at the same time. Yeah, we're we're basically trying to change a an assumption that underlies a lot of contemporary healthcare that is incorrect. And, and the assumption is that if we can't find an organ disease or a structural abnormality to explain a symptom, then there's nothing more to be done. There's nothing more to look for. There's no explanation for that symptom that we're going to be able to find. And that assumption is uh, completely false. And, and you're also entirely correct that one of the, uh, the fringe benefits or side effects, if you will, of this work is that we change people's lives. It's not just alleviating symptoms. You know, if somebody's got a fractured leg and you fix the fracture and the fracture heals, yes, the person goes back to, uh, being able to walk the way they did before, ideally, but uh, you haven't changed other aspects of their life. You haven't changed their relationships. You haven't changed their um, personal level of happiness. But with this work, um, you are you know, reaching into their, their personality, into their uh, conflicts and fears uh, as a way of alleviating symptoms. But it's got all these other fringe benefits, uh, as you point out, for, for the rest of their lives, for their uh, personal relationships. Um, you know, a number of my patients have had one bad relationship after another in terms of their, you know, romantic uh, entanglements. And, um, but once they work through this process to alleviate their physical symptoms, their, their tolerance for people who mistreat them uh, goes way down and they start suddenly finding that entirely new, different, more positive, more mutually supportive kinds of people uh, start showing up in their lives uh, than ever did before. And that's, that's just one example of uh, the positive changes that come from doing this work. Well, we start sort of a, a positive spiral, and then we know that social connection is a major factor in healing. Yes. When you interact with other people, we know that social isolation creates the same, it has the same effect on mortality or health as 15 cigarettes a day. And you get the same symptoms that you get with chronic pain. It's the social isolation is a big deal. So once you actually start reconnecting, re-engaging, then that builds on itself also, all, all part of the healing process. And we know there's all sorts of neurochemical changes. But see, the thing that strikes me as I'm talking, I just thought thinking out loud here is that, okay, so a patient comes to us with all these symptoms, and we say, well, we don't know what's going on. Well, maybe 
I think in positions, it's important to be humble enough to say, well, if I don't know, it doesn't mean I can't say nothing's wrong. And are we asking, so really the question is, are we asking the right questions, but, but are we also doing the right test? In other words, we do know in research MRI scans that if you did a research MRI scan, somebody with irritable bowel or back pain, that the MRI scans in people in chronic pain are different than the MRI scans in people without pain. I mean, the functional MRI scans are just different. So the diagnosis is actually there. And I talked to Dr. F. Karen, who's one of the grandfathers of this whole process, or godfathers yes. of this whole process. He says, you know, probably functional MRI scans will probably, probably never be clinically available because it's just too complicated with all these computer programs and interpreting the data. But just because we don't give people that particular test doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But can you talk, can you comment on that, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there the fMRI has really helped us to um, put the physiology and psychophysiology. Psychophysiology. I mean, as you pointed out, the the term is a blend of psychology and physiology, and the physiology hasn't been. Um, that well understood until the last 20 years or so. And the, the functional magnetic resonance imaging machine has shown us that patients with these disorders are, are different in their neuroanatomy in the central nervous system in the brain. So there really is a, a physiology behind this. Um, the symptoms are not all in your head, quote unquote, they're actually in your brain, which is a, a, a huge distinction. Um, and so once people understand that, it they feel a lot better about um, the illness that they have, and they're usually more willing to explore uh, the psychosocial causes. You know, once they, they understand that this is a real condition, that this has resulted from stress, that, that you know, the symptoms are every bit as real as they are from any other form of illness, we, that we just need to go and explore uh, sources of stress in the patient's life, uh, including uh, negative emotions that haven't been recognized. Uh, mm -hmm. And then people are usually willing to uh, be on the same page with us and, and begin the work of uh, finding those causes. You know, most of the time, it's pretty straightforward. As, as you pointed out in the, the podcast that we did uh, a few weeks ago, just asking the simple question, what's going on in your life will often open the floodgates. Um, but there are some patients where uh, the key issue is an emotion that uh, they don't fully recognize they have. And that, that can be more subtle and that can take a, a kind of a longer conversation and can take uh, more experience to be able to uh, figure out what's going on because the patient themselves isn't able to put it into words for you. So when they're describing, for example, uh, as one of the stories I told last time was about a woman who had enormous emotional tension in the relationship with her mother, but she wasn't consciously aware of it. So we had to have, you know, spend quite a bit of time talking about um, when and where she was having her symptoms and what kinds of things her mother had done to her. And you had to be able to empathize and, and to recognize that, well, gosh, if my mother had done that to me, I would be pretty upset. And so the, the patient was upset. She just didn't know it. So I'm not a neuroscientist. This is very simplistic thinking in a way, but I had one, actually multiple people, but one gentleman in particular pointed out, he's 75, he says, I'm 75 years old and I still hear my mother's voice in my head. He says, how can that be? <laughs> but, you know, my point being is that right this second, this very second is programmed by your entire past up to the second. So I don't put my hand on a hot stove. I'm not walking out into the street. So I've learned about things in the past that were dangerous and unsafe. And so if you come across a similar situation now that you had in the past, it was 
emotionally unpleasant, even though you may not be aware of it, you're going to react. And so it's all, it's a linkage system. And the other thing that struck me a few years ago is that the brain does not store away memories with a time clock. It may be harder to pull it up when the memories are farther back, but once you get that memory pulled up, your body's reacting right now, right? Yeah. yeah. So the question, so so just understanding the linkage is that you don't get over the stuff because it's in your brain, it's embedded, it's a, it's a linkage system. And by becoming aware, I think, as you pointed out, to just becoming aware of that link actually is a pretty big wake-up call. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I try to point out, <clears throat> excuse me, point out to people that humanity is distinguished from other species on the planet by how much we can learn. And the most important subject we learn about is ourselves as individuals. You know, am, am I a good person? Am I not? Am I skilled at throwing a baseball or not? You know, all these different aspects of ourselves that we spend a lot of time in our early years uh, learning about. <clears throat> and if we grow up in an unhealthy environment, we end up uh, learning fundamental assumptions about ourselves that aren't true. And the most common one in my practice is learning that you are unworthy in some way as a person, that you are a, a second rate a, as a human being. Um, and that can instill um, a degree of uh, being hypercritical of yourself, that if you fall short even a little bit, you come down on yourself uh, a lot harder than you would on uh, someone else who fell short by the same amount. Um, my son, who is a, an athlete in college, took a sports psychology class where they had him do a, a wonderful exercise, which was to take out a piece of paper and write on it uh, what they say to themselves uh, when they mess up in their sport. So all these you know, college athletes taking this course, they're sitting there writing down privately uh, what they say to themselves when they screw up in their sport. And then you know, they finish writing and the instructor says, now I want you to take what you've written and say it to the person next to you. And everybody goes, no, no, I can't possibly do that. That would be, you know, what a, what a horrible thing to, uh, to say to uh, anybody else. But, and yet they were saying it to themselves uh, right. because you know, they're very, you know, uh, they're perfectionists. That's how they got to be college athletes. And you know, people learn that um, at an early age and they learn it to extremes when it gets to the level of uh, a psychophysiologic disorder. So when people see how they were taught that, if they can see who taught them and how it was done to them, that can really facilitate the process of unlearning that falsehood that you that you don't measure up, that you're a second rate person, that you um, need to be perfect. Uh, you know, all of those false ideas that have become basic assumptions for so many of our patients, if they can see how it got planted in their brain, that can facilitate unplanting it. Yeah, I just talked to Jamie Pennybaker a couple months ago. And yes, excellent. That's a writing is a big deal. And he said there's 250 papers alone last year that he undocumented the effectiveness of different types of expressive writing. Yes. And so, but I, it's a funny because a bunch of us had been with him in Seattle because his daughter was there. And we're going, Jamie, what, why does this work? Why is this expressive writing so powerful? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we, it, we just know it works. And, you know, we have this theory. I mean, my theory is we're, we can't control our thoughts, but we separate from them. And I know there's a book called, um, there's a book called Opening Up by Writing. Opening Up, yeah. He's in, I think it's in the third edition now. Excellent. Yeah, it just documents the incredible things like decreasing viral load, improving symptoms of asthma, rheumatoid arthritis. It improves kidney function, liver function. It's insane. 
And I think it's one of the reasons people have so much trouble with it because it's such a simple tool for such, and almost it's like dishonoring your suffering. You're going, how can this work? That's <laughs> interesting. Well, yeah, what I, you know, I am not a neuroscientist either, but what I tell my patients is that the more of these uh, thoughts and emotions they can put down onto a page or, you know, typed onto a computer screen, the less those emotions need to be expressed via the body. You know, when you've right. got a powerful emotion, it needs to find its way out somehow. Right. You know, and some people express it, you know, via road rage, you know, they, they lose their temper easily and, and they throw things, you know, they basically physically act out the emotion. Um, those people tend not to show up in my office because they're coping with the emotion in, in that way. It's not a very constructive way, but it doesn't tend to lead to uh, physical symptoms. Um, and then the people who do wind up in my office, if they can take those emotions that are being expressed somatically and put them into words, um, then that, you know, that's a more constructive um, um, approach to dealing with them. So we got a couple more, more minutes here. I just want to finish up with a couple um, questions. So um, if you just review really quickly um, how to access the resources you're working on, because you did write a book also, correct, which I thought was excellent. Yeah, the, the book is titled They Can't Find Anything Wrong. All the royalties from it uh, are donated to the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. And it's written as a self-help book for patients, has about uh, four dozen stories uh, illustrating the spectrum of different kinds of stresses that are capable of making people physically ill. Uh, and the second book, uh, which I co-edited with uh, three other people and that has a total of 16 contributors is called psychophysiologic disorders and both books are available on amazon um, the psychophysiologic disorders is written without jargon so if, if you're a, a patient who's not a healthcare professional uh, you can still get a lot out of it if you're you know a science-oriented reader and i like if you uh, so what's your main message um i guess first to healthcare providers and then to patients. And maybe it's the same message. So um, what's the main message that you're trying to get out to the world in general? You know, if I was going to completely boil it down to the basics, I would just say that stress can cause real symptoms and effective treatment is available. Because, mm -hmm. you know, those, those simple words, you know, contradict the false assumptions that a lot of modern healthcare is based on, which is that, if you don't have an organ disease or a structural abnormality, there's nothing we can do for you. And that's, that's completely false. Stress Absolutely. can do this to you. I mean, I've had, as I think we talked about in our last interview, people in the hospital with this, people with, one of my patients was ill for 79 years. One of my patients had 27 different symptoms, um, you know, and they're every bit as severe and as real as the symptoms in my patients with uh, or other forms of illness. Well, you know, I had, you've heard my story multiple times, you know, I had 17 of these symptoms at the yeah. same time, and they're all gone. They are gone. And especially things like ringing in my ears, tinnitus. I mean, I had that for 25 years. And I, you know, I assumed I would live with that the rest of my life. And I had lots of burning sensations in my feet, had been there for 25 years, gone. And it's fascinating because we change the whole body's response to the environment, things change. The physical symptoms disappear. They're gone. Migraine headaches, gone. So it's fascinating how, and, it, and then you get, again, when you're not fighting all these symptoms, then you do get to thrive, which is really sort of fun. 
Yeah, it's it's you know wonderful to see the outcomes for patients, um, and I've I've seen benefits of this work. You know, when you are able to, you know, get down into the the roots of the uh, psychological psychosocial struggles that people are having, it has benefits in other areas as well. People who've been suffering from addictions uh, or eating disorders or cutting behavior, um, those issues also benefit uh, from this same approach so that if you're a psychotherapist listening to this um, understanding the impact of psychosocial stress on the body can help you uh, help your clients with these other issues as well i had a question i wanted to ask you which is maybe something we've never really talked about and you may or may not agree with it but i've kind of realization that um solving chronic pain actually doesn't come with belief it comes just with openness and openness to learn and I always point out that just like the stock market climbs a wall of fear, actually engaging in your cynicism and skepticism is actually the starting point. So it's not about believing enough, believing, you know, David Hanscom or David Clark, just digging into what is and just digging in. And so to me, the starting point has been really quite successfully is they don't believe this is going to work. That's, that's what's real. And you sort of digging into the skepticism is sort of the starting point you start slowly going through the tools to help you heal, then it's game on. Is that a thought that's... Yeah, yeah, the way I express it is that the uh, psychosocial stress uh, we have to consider could be a contributing factor to a person's symptoms. We may not necessarily know at the beginning whether it's contributing 10% or 90%, but even if it's only 10%, it's still worth um, looking into what the stresses are in a person's life to see if we can uh, make a difference. And who knows, we may get lucky and find out that it's actually 90 or 100% of what's causing a person's illness. But as long as the patient is willing to engage with the process in the hopes that even a little bit of improvement could come from it, um, then we can make progress. And we're often surprised by how much progress happens and, and how quickly it happens. As one of my most successful patients pointed out, it also requires a suspension of your disbelief just to engage in a little bit. So um, yeah, no, it's, it's been interesting. So Dave, thank you again very, very much. This is uh, wonderful stuff. And uh, there will be other topics that we'll talk about in the future more in specific detail, but this is fantastic. And again, inspiration to me, doing excellent work, really committed to getting the message out there. So again, Dave, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Um, thank you, David. It's uh, been a pleasure to talk with you as always. And just just remarkable how two people from very different specialties have uh, reached such a meeting of the minds on this issue. Yeah, most exciting. We'll see you. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David Clark, for being on the show today and for sharing his insights into the nature and treatment of psychophysiologic disorders. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.